Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, guest host Mike Dempsey and I have a conversation with John Stallone. John comes from a military family. His grandfather served in World War II, and his dad and his uncle served in Vietnam. So enlisting in the military was a no-brainer for him. He joined the U.S. Air Force at 18. From 1998 to 2002, he served as a security forces member and was deployed four times in support of Operation Southern Watch and Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. In 2002, at the age of 22, he joined the Alaska Air National Guard. After he left the Guard in 2009, he took a number of jobs where he was in a position to promote and encourage safety, namely as a safety officer for OSHA and a bouncer in downtown Anchorage. The common thread that links these jobs is John's sense of duty. He says that one of the core values of the Air Force is service before self, which is something he continues to live by. Okay, time to give the Crude Company men a shout out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, and Alaska Surf Adventure. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. Your money helps keep these conversations going. So if you enjoy these conversations, you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. Okay, back to John Stallone. For a good portion of this conversation, John talks about his struggle with depression and PTSD. He talks about the psychological aftermath of spending eight months in active war zones how it was a continuous evolution of hurry up and get ready or hurry up and get used to this. But by the time you acclimated to that environment, it was time to go home. And then once you were home, you were forced to deal with everything you had been through among civilians who have no frame of reference for war. In 2011, everything kind of came to a head and John had a mental breakdown. He called the veterans crisis line and they helped him work through it and also directed him to local mental health resources. If you or someone you know is struggling with depression, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline and Veterans Crisis Line is 1-800-273-8255. So let's get into this one. Here he is, John Stallone. (laughs) This red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude Conversations. Listen more, then you talk. Go to work! John, we were talking about um, how we met each other, and it's funny that you brought that up, how you met me, because my first question on here was, uh, you know, long before I was aware of your military service, I knew you as a bouncer at bars in downtown Anchorage. Absolutely. What got you into that? Well, it was funny. I growing up here, I had a lot of friends that uh, I, I grew up in the same like different churches, and we went to I went to Our Lady of Guadalupe, and grew up in the Catholic Church, and 
uh, when I moved back here from active duty, I grew up in the same Catholic church with a lot of the guys that worked at the Pioneer Bar. So when you had, um, when I got back and I started hanging out and going out with friends and, and kind of seeing what the nightlife was, because I hadn't, I really hadn't spent a whole lot of time back in Anchorage as over 21. So I come back, I'm 23, Mike Ward, Dave Crawford, these guys are at the Pioneer. And summer of 03 is when I came on the scene. And um, I just, I don't know, man, I, I really loved not having any idea what the service industry is about or or what the Anchorage night scene was like. Uh, I came, I thought I came home at a really cool time because there was still, um, 36 was uh, Crazy Fist were just starting to get, uh, they're getting a lot of headway coming out of Portland and then, and then Del Mag was, was still pretty big and we had some really cool places back then. I mean, the the Alley uh, Bar, which was across the street from the Cook, um, they had uh, audio autopsy every like third Thursday, and that's where Indefinite Etiquette and Josh Boots, and you know, it's just kind of like mm-hmm. you had this hip hop head scene, but then you could go over to Humpy's, and uh, there was a there was a, a group or there was a band called Dive Bar, and Jody and those guys would do their thing, and so it was for me. It was really cool. I came in at at a really cool time, and then, you know, I'm not knowing exactly how much pent up, uh, I wouldn't call it rage, but but some of the lasting effects from some of the deployments that I'd already been on. You know, I'm in a I'm in an environment where I'm sober, but yet I'm having the opportunity to express yourself. Yes, <laughs> yes. Let's. Let some aggression out in a, in a, in a proper format. And uh, it was, uh, but I loved it. I mean, between um, Pioneer Bar started there. Then I got to know the girls real well over at F Street. And, and Andy brought me in there in 2004. And um, between deployments and, and slope life, uh, working up on the slope, and then various other, you know, jobs and, and things that I did, I was able to do... I was I was always able to pick up a shift, and I worked at the Anchor, and I worked at uh, I worked for Brynn and Antoine. I was with them at uh, Killjoy when they first opened that up, and then um, when I got to meet you the first time at your the Crude release party, okay, Brown, okay. Ba- Brown Bag, yeah, Brown Bag, and then we then we moved to the old Woodshed, and um, so yeah, it was just uh, it was really I feel like that's kind of been. Ultimately, that's kind of how I got to know like the majority of the people that I know in the city mm-hmm. was working downtown, and it was I thought it was kind of cool being a part of that life. And I'm still I'm not actively part of it. I'm not I'm not bouncing. I'm not bartending. I'm not doing anything like that. But I still know everyone. So you know, I it's not uh, it's not uncommon for me to go out and just just drive around. I just go stop in at different places and say hi. So you know, check on people, see how they're doing, and. It's a, for me, that's been kind of a nice community to be a part of. For sure. How do you feel about drunk people? (laughs) My, (laughs) I, I I think everyone's entitled to go out and have fun. I think everyone should go out and have fun. And in, in, in an environment like here where seasonal effectiveness, um, from the lack of, you know, sunlight, it, it plays on everyone. It, it, cabin fever is a real thing. Sure. But the thing that like has always been something that that I don't have a, like a lot of tolerance for was just discounting or discrediting 
what happened the night before. Well, I, you know, if I drink this, then I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose control or I'm, I'm not going to yeah, be, yeah. you don't want to see me on whiskey. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, then if you know that, then don't drink that for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, try to have, try to be accountable for me. I've had two moments in my life where I've absolutely blacked out. And in, in, in retrospect, it's embarrassing. Like I, I wake up, I, my head's spinning around. I don't know where I'm at. If I look like, you know, I, I look like Ed Helms getting <laughs> up in the hangover. <laughs> you're not sure if you're like, you've lost a tooth. Like you, f- you feel like the heads, your rooms are spinning. There's a chicken walking across the floor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's only happened twice, but it was like twice too many. So, uh, I, I, th- I think drug people are are fine. I think they're more, more oftentimes not. They're okay. But when it gets sideways, it gets sideways fast. How long were you a bouncer downtown? So it was um, on and off, but it, um, I stopped in 2014. So um, on and off, I did it for about 11 years. So for somebody who's who may be listening that's not familiar with the Anchorage downtown scene, what kind of stuff have you seen and possibly what is some of the hairiest stuff you have seen? Well, the, it's, it's crazy. I mean, some of the stuff is, is legitimately scary and uh, being in F street and watching uh, a former AFC fighter, uh, you know, this guy was talking he's moving his, he's being jovial and he moved his, beer bottle around and spilled some beer on his, his date and the guy grabbed the bottle of beer and he broke it over the oyster bar where the cooks are at and he took it and he pincushioned the guy in the neck and and then the ufc like, guy yeah afc yeah there's a it was oh, an afc afc yeah local guy okay so he he's like he's sticking this guy in the neck and then he drops it, and the next thing you know, he's got to run past me and James, and we're there. And he just all he does, he just palms James in the face, and he he just kind of like does this stiff arm, you know, Heisman Trophy looking deal, and he runs by by me, and then Andy and I are trying to go after and get him, and then he was already, I mean, he'd already made it almost halfway down the block, and then I was like, we well, got to work on this guy. So then you know, from there, we got to go do triage on this guy and, and wait till the EMS shows up. But something like that, I mean, there were there was one time where a bunch of slope workers decided to get into a fight with some semi-pro and pro hockey players who were hanging out at F Street. Oh, and man. that was so <laughs> it was it was like I'm not gonna drop any names, but it was just like to see these like some of these like yoked out like southern boys thinking that they're gonna go to town with these guys and nothing happened inside the bar. We, it's all on ice. We, <laughs> the Zamboni's coming down F Street. <laughs> uh, so they uh, they wound up all going outside, and they just had this massive melee right on F Street. And everybody, most people were standing there with their cocktails, like like right up on the window, and they're watching this thing. And like a couple guys went outside with their drinks. I was like, get inside. And there's no way, there's no reason for us to step in or get involved. Just. Let them let them figure it out. Enjoy the show. Right, right. It was crazy, but uh, you know, I, I think there has been. I was like, I was really uh, surprised to see some of the stuff that was going on 
or the downtown, like the partnership and, and not to speak ill on their, on their behalf, but like kind of how they went at, um, Brown bag was, was, was really kind of interesting to me because in the years past, mm-hmm. I've seen the shed or when the woodshed turned into the shed, I mean, it was like a mini coots downtown. And so it was kind of, it was interesting to me to see like how they took to them or, or how they treated them. Cause I felt that was a little different. And this is their location at the woodshed. At the old, right, at the woodshed it, on third Avenue. On third, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pioneer, lots of, especially when we had the, the backward hat crew, the, you know, all the guys from Turnigan hardcore and you know, those, those guys, they made some, made for some interesting nights and, um, just a lot of just a lot of bar fights but but nothing nothing as crazy to me as like like my buddy james james took a shot in the leg at a gunshot uh, a gunshot okay at uh platinum jacks really and and thankfully honestly god and then this is the last place i would have thought i would ever be worried was killjoy it was uh it was just like right around this time of year i think it was post holiday season and I was hanging out and Killjoy was, I loved Killjoy because I wore slacks and suspenders and nice shirts. Yeah, and, that place was awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. It's like a wine bar, right? Yeah, it was a wine bar. Yeah, wine and beer. And um, But <laughs> across the way from us, across the street was the playhouse. And, you know, I don't know. God knows what happens in that parking lot that's on third back there where usually the carnival sets up for, uh, for Rondi. Right next to the Sunshine Building. Right, the Sunshine Plaza right behind yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> next thing, I'm standing out there. I'm just hanging out. And like, no, no kidding, like 10 shots pop off. And then I'm like, <laughs> let's go inside. I lock the, the door of the Killjoy and I'm like, everybody get out. Like, and we, we funneled everyone out onto the D Street entrance to Brown Bag. Mm-hmm. And then we had them leave there and go onto Fifth Avenue. Because I just, we didn't know. I was I was worried for our patrons. I was worried for myself. Um, I was like, you know, if I could survive Afghanistan, I get plugged on Fourth <laughs> Avenue. Jeez, <laughs> <gonna yeah>. <laughs> so <laughs> so you know, we locked her up and we got everyone out. But I think that's some of the crazier stuff. I mean, more... More good than than bad happened mm-hmm. in in all that time. There was some. Um, I remember there being uh, a couple of really big melees in inside uh, the anchor, but I I think some of that just goes back to some of the staff we had on that time. I I tried to use more verbal judo than than actual putting my hands on being physical with people, and and some of the guys that we worked with were we're down to ground and pound. And I was just like, yeah, but this isn't Thursday night at the fights. This mm-hmm. is, we just, we just got a job. And this, this guy's just, he's lippy, but I don't know if he needs to get his head bounced off a of asphalt. So yeah. it was, it's, it was a little crazy here and there. Well, that seems to be pretty typical as far as somebody who is able to inflict harm and knows that they can are less likely to do that. As far as I've seen, you know, I've talked to, uh, I've talked to and heard from UFC fighters and they're like the calmest, mellowest people. Absolutely. And it's, it's, you have people that actually, um, beside their training, they respect what their training provides, the, the kind of discipline and what goes behind 
what they're learning and it, it, it it's it's more than just the the defensive or the offensive aspects of you being out and and potentially having to defend yourself or your friends your loved one but it's also like there's a mantra to it like you and you really don't want to disrespect the time you've put into mm-hmm. whatever form of martial art that you're you know you're into and it, so it's kind of uh I always like the old adage, like, I know just enough to get in trouble. Like, you're, like, you just got enough of, like, a half-ass understanding of something, or you know a couple moves, and then you think you're Chuck Norris. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> like, the first guys that are ready to roll, and it's like, no, 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 don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like in uh, that documentary, Roadhouse. Uh, <laughs> when it's, I want you to be nice until it's time not to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Great documentary, by the way. Yeah. Rest in peace it. to the sways. <laughs> oh, man. I love that movie so much. And it's so, it's so like... Accurate, would you say? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. It's so funny to me to think that there's like these two guys. There's like Dalton and Wade Garrett. And they're like known synonymously throughout the country. The best like the, in the biz. Yeah, the best. <laughs> they're the absolute best coolers. And I mean, he's in Kansas, but he was like he was like a top, you know, he was a top cooler at some bar in Manhattan. And yet, you know, he's like, well, this this guy from the Double Deuce is gonna make it worth <laughs> my while to come down here and sh- I'm gonna take care of this place clean and clean up I, this town. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys recently watch this show or I'm this sorry. movie? I just know this stuff. I mean, <laughs> you just know it. <laughs> I try to watch it, you know, once every couple months just to stay sharp. <laughs> and the bad guy, just so y'all know, Brad Wesley, bad guy. He he brought J.C. Penny to that town. <laughs> the first time a throat rip has actually been documented on any format, really. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so in preparation for this conversation, Mike and I have been texting back and forth. And one concern that he said you had was overstating your military service. Because I'd like to get into that and kind of kind of talk a little bit about it. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that kind of sentiment is common with people who feel like they could have done more. Even if the reality is they did all they could, which was more than enough. No, that's that's a that's an accurate statement. I think for me, it's just like I went over to Afghanistan for the first time right after 9-11. And so being over there, you know, in, in such a close proximity to when those, you know, horrific events happened, um, it's not, you know, I leave those events those things that happen um you know i kind of at this point in time like i don't mind sharing with some of the people that i'm closest to but and i don't have no problem telling you what i did but some of those things that are the most impactful on me you know i leave that again to people i trust or i leave that to my therapist and you know and, and i and in all honesty like i think a lot of the things that i experienced and got to be a part of and i got to see it really impacted me, but at the same time, I got to work around people like Roger Sparks and Jimmy Settle and Chris Robertson. And I knew a lot of the guys from the Alaska team. 
So it's, I don't know. It's like, it's like you don't, you don't really need to compare because it's not, that's not at all what you need to do. Mm -hmm. You need to be proud. You need to be understanding of whatever it is your impact was, however, whatever role it is you played when you were in that environment or we call the AOR, the area of responsibility. And I don't, I don't want to, I know I'm not trying to compare it because those guys are just amazing. Like those, those stories are crazy, but what it is I got to experience and what I got to see was crazy enough for me. <laughs> it was, it was, and I, I think from having a, having that, that security forces background and being a part of detainee missions, picking up Al Qaeda, Taliban detainees and various, I mean, crazy locations and then getting them over into the EU, getting them loaded up on other aircraft so they can go, I mean, Guantanamo, um, picking up wounded, uh, helping out with some of the different special ops missions as far as, and not like, it's not like I was on a four wheeler and going out with those guys or, you know, running in the caves. No, the plane would land. <laughs> I would get out. And at the time, like we didn't even have our M4s yet. We had like M16s. So we're like standing out there, engine running, you know, going on. And we're like, we're like watching these guys come on and we're there just in case we start to take fire and we got to return fire back. But then like you see these guys come up and they've got like the coolest new gear. It's it's like you show up on the, uh, my buddy said this, uh, Jason said, he goes, um, it's like, you ever feel like you're stepping onto the basketball court and everyone's got Jordans and you're in like an old ass Larry Bird pair of Converse. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of how we felt. Cause like these guys, like their M4s were tricked out and they had, they had these really cool, um, uh, uh, camo paint jobs on them. And like, they had all the newest gear and like, we're rocking with whatever they, you know, had in the cold war. Um, yeah. <laughs> we got some Chuck Taylors on. <laughs> <laughs> we got some old steel pots on. We're like, we got your back. <laughs> like, no, you don't. <laughs> um, but you know, like we did. There were on all those missions that we, I got to fly on and get to be a part of. You see this. I don't want to call it like a decay, but it's definitely like a lack of humanity and. You know, this is something that I talked with my my therapist about. And he's like, well, um, you you do realize like there were uh, these detainees, they were they were sold like they would want to see you dead. I'm like, sure, I get that. There are enemies They're They're who we're going after. Are they there is this combined effort in in their mantra and their, the way they're feeling is, you know, they're excited that 3000 people died. On that day, they're they're happy that this is one of the you know the single greatest attacks on U.S. soil since Pearl Harbor. But when you see somebody stripped down in a coverall, uh, burlap sack over their head, duct tape around their neck, arms zip tied around their back, and they're chained to the floor, they're pissing and shitting themselves, and and then still, you know, there's there's other service members that I'm. I'm with 
and they're coming up behind with batons and they're cracking dudes in the collarbone or the kidney. And I'm just like, Hey, they're down. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, I don't, they're like, you know, well, if they start tapping their feet on the floor of the plane, then maybe they could be trying to communicate with each other through Morse code. And I'm like, dude, no, there's no uprising at this point. Yeah. Like they're chained to the floor. Like livestock gets be- treated better than this. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, being a part of so many of those missions and then doing the medevac missions. And, oh, man, I mean, I, I can't tell you, like, what it's what it brings up and, like, what it feels like when that's not something you've been – and you can, I don't know if you can condition anybody for that, but it's – you know that it's, it's your it's your brother and sisters in arms, and you know you're you're there for a common goal, but but my job is keep is is not right there on the on the forefront. We're picking them up, and we're we're gonna get them we're gonna get them to some uh, some medical care. But it's still there's nothing like seeing that. It's nothing like being in that environment, and it's it's just go go go, and it's everything's moving. And you're you're going from you're jumping from one plane to the next plane. You're doing debriefs left and right. You're 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 experiencing live fire. Mm-hmm. There's 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 dust plumes kicking up around you, and you're like, oh yeah, that's those are rounds. Mm-hmm. There's rounds coming at me right now. And then even though the the C one thirties we had were had armor plating on it, like you could still tell when that triple A ammunition's hitting the bird, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's a scary feeling. And then next thing you know, uh, the counter defensive measures are kicking off. There's, there's, you know, um, all of a sudden we're locked on, you know, with a, an RPG or Sam and something's coming at us and we got to, you know, do evasive maneuvers and they got to kick out chaff and flare and they got to try to, you know, get us out of it. And it's, it's just this like, you know, for almost eight months, it was this continuous uh, evolution of, you know, hurry up and get ready, or or hurry up and get used to this, mm-hmm. and then and then and then it's time to come home. And my first time being at Chilku Charlie's was in July of '02 when I came back from from that from from my from Afghanistan. And we're hanging out with my friends and we're, we're, we're having a good time. And I was like, I wasn't totally sketched out because I was, I always had somebody with an arm's length, you know, like I was, I felt comfortable. I felt secure. I felt safe. But it's like, it's, it's funny and sad at the same time, but I didn't know what it's like when you close the bar down. And it's time to leave, mm-hmm. and we're right there at the old bar, and we're 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 heading out the door, and they turn on the air siren, and the air siren hits. It's super loud. It's 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 not expected, and I hit the ground, like I dropped, mm-hmm. and my friends are kind of looking at me. And they're like, "What is wrong?" And I was just like. And I had to play it off, you know. I had to t- t- try to act like it was a joke, or I-, I meant to do it, or whatever. But you know, as I stand up, and my shirt's covered in sawdust and old beer, um, you know, I-, I just 
I think that's the first time I, I really recognized that something is something's changed, mm -hmm. and and this is this is something that I'm gonna have to get my wrap my head around. I feel like I kind of got the sentiment when you were describing. You know, you didn't want to like compare it, or you wanted to be respectful of you know the people that you feel like did more, but. I remember you saying that it, I was just doing my job, like this is just my job. But I mean, if your job was not to necessarily go out and to attack mode, I mean, you still had to see things that you weren't ready for in doing that job. So, I mean, it's almost like you're, you know, maybe even less prepared than for some of the stuff that you had to see maybe. Yeah. It, you know, we, God bless, <laughs> God bless the military. I think the U.S. Air Force did, especially, I mean, I went through training in like, I went through basic in 98 and, and then training kicked in. Tech school was in 99. And, uh, you know, really the only thing at that time was we were still doing Operation Northern Watch out of Turkey and we were doing Operation Southern Watch out of Kuwait and Saudi and I think think Bahrain and, and uh, UAE, maybe Qatar too. But anyway, it was like more more or less, It I would consider that time frame kind of like a peacetime, you know? And, and even though we had guys that were over in that area working, I always joked around. I call I my first time getting to go to was in Kuwait and that was 99. And I I affectionately called those deployments pre 9/11. I called it Air Force Fat Camp cuz everyone went over <laughs> and they got dark and they lost like 20 or 30 pounds. You got extra money in your cuz you were in a, you know, hazard pay area. Um we all traveled, we all went into Riyadh or we went to uh, in Kuwait, we went to Faha Hill or went to the the Filipino market or UAE. We'd, we'd go to, we'd drive to Dubai or we'd go hang out in Abu Dhabi. It was cool, man. It was like, it was like a field trip. Mm -hmm. And even though there were some things that spun out on, on those trips, like when we had to, we had to provide security for embassy personnel after the USS Cole got bombed. We we went into we went to Yemen and and helped you know grab people and and got them out and I uh, I think the training that we got at the time was just like it matched our environment and it was just kind of like oh we're gonna teach you we're gonna give you like some baseline stuff for hand to hand combat we're gonna familiarize you on all these different weapons, not the not that you're going to use them on a day-to-day -day basis or not that we're expecting us to wind up in a, in a war sometime, mm -hmm. but here's the 16, here's the M203 grenade launcher, here's the 249 saw, here's the M60. And like you get to, like you like I said, we got to play with all this stuff. We got to throw a grenade and it's like, I mean, I actually got to shoot a law rocket, but it was like, I mean, it was like fantasy camp for like a G.I. Joe fantasy camp. Mm -hmm. and, and then like you come hurtling back down to earth when you get to your first base. And it's just, uh, well, you're you're going to be a combination of security and law enforcement. So part of the time you're going to be sitting on a ramp watching dust collect on the, you know, on an old 
Ford truck or you're going to be at a gate and you're going to be waving people in or checking IDs. So it's like, I mean, <laughs> to go from to go from that environment to this is real world. Mm-hmm. We're being attacked. We are afraid of having another attack. And now we're going to go over there and we're going to do what we do. But, you know, you get over there and you're like, well, what is it? What is it we do? Mm-hmm. How is this? How does this look? And you learn it all on the fly. Just baptism by fire. Hell yeah. And it's it's not... Um, and I don't, I don't blame anyone or I don't, I don't chastise what I was a part of and how it happened. I think given the circumstances, we all did the best job we could. And I think, and I, whether or not you agree with the politics behind it or the diplomacy or Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever, I'm never going to besmirch or or look down on anyone that spent their time there whether you were turning a wrench on a air conditioning unit or you're a badass like roger sparks mm-hmm. i got no more love for you because you, you you hang out under that sun in those conditions in that area it's it's not fun you know in my experience with these conversations i have i've encountered uh, you've mentioned Roger Sparks, the retired Marine and pararescue, but I've also encountered it a number of other times in different professions where you have somebody who sees the reality of something that the average civilian will recklessly just talk shit about, right? right. And then once you see it, once you're a part of it, like once you're among it, you you have this newfound respect for it. It's it's very interesting to me, and I think that there's actually a line from this book, Ender's Game. It's like once you, I'm going to butcher the, the line, but it's like something to the effect that once you kind of completely understand somebody, it's difficult not to love them. That's a great line. I, I think I really have to be cautious about what conversations I choose to let myself be a part of and going, looking at what's going on right now in um, the death of that general, the Iranian general. Um, You know, I don't know if a lot of people have like, I don't think it's really everyone's responsibility to know the history of all of that stuff or, or to understand where all that stuff comes from. But I really like I applaud or I encourage people to look into the research of it or into the backstories of it because it's I mean, I was at Bubbly Mermaid on Saturday and there's 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 so many little ish not issues, but there's so many events that that general had been a part of that had costs of you know, loss of life and not just the one U S contractor, but other military members over the years. And the guy, this guy just kind of looked or he was talking, he was sitting behind me and he goes, Oh, and that happened 20 years ago. And I just, 
I became enraged and I like, I stood up, my stool came flying out and I walked up and I'm like, what does it matter? Mm -hmm. Like, are you going to put shelf life on it? Like after what, after 10 years, it's, it's okay. And I knew people when I first joined, I knew people that were survivors of like the Cobar tower explosion when they, when they blew it. That's, we had so many service members. I mean, I think from, almost every branch that were staying inside this this hotel and that's where that's that's where they were staying and i'm i'm not 100 percent sure about whether or not this former general was a part of it i i i was reading a couple of different articles that were kind of alluding to him having some part of that or, or having some part of the planning you know, but they backed up of that a, incident with the, the tower. Yeah, the Cobar Towers. The Cobar Towers. Yeah, but they backed up a truck full of C four up to this hotel. Nobody, the the gate guards, which were host nationals, they weren't Americans. I mean, they have they're Americans that were on the inner perimeter, but it was close enough, mm-hmm. and it was enough material um, to make that big of an explosion. And losing, you know, an estimate. I think it was a. I don't know, somewhere between four and six hundred people had, had died in, in that in that event. And you know, to have some slack jawed goofball sit there and be like, Well, it was twenty years ago. I'm just like, it doesn't matter. What was his response after you said that? I he just sat there and he was like he's like, Do you understand the ripple effects? Do you understand how how things can escalate? And I started to I was laughing. I go, you know what's funny to me? I says Syria had gassed some, uh, I think it was orphans. It was women and children that had, had died under Assad. China has an active interest with Syria. The one day these women and children die in Syria. The next day, Trump is in China having dinner, like eating a steak with like the prime minister, the, the, the premier. And even though knowing that China has an interest in Syria... He still sent like thirty or forty Tomahawk missiles and and took out you know some of these. Um, I don't I don't know how many casualties came out of it, but I knew he took out like some radar sites and it, it, you know he he took them out. And I was just like, he's sitting with the guy who's got an interest in what what what's, what's going on in Syria, and and like he had and nothing spun out of that. And I said, I mean, that's that's the that's the ripple effect. Like it's anything that's going to be done on a grand scale or, and this is just my opinion. I'm no, you know, tactician. I don't, I'm I'm not former anything really, but there's got to be a power struggle that you're, that you're going to, that's going to come out of it or, or some kind of, um, you know, an immense amount of money or power to be gained. And, and right now this stuff is, it squabbles on a, on a, international on a global level but is it enough to pull in one of these other superpowers to say yeah we're going to stand up to the u.s and i just don't see it i don't see it because it's you we have even with china's military being you know so much i mean as far as personnel goes so much larger than ours i still don't see where like nobody wants to see World War Three. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to. Nobody wants to see that kind of carnage. And and the stuff that's going on right now, you know, I I wish there was somebody 
that could come in there and and really like Kissinger, like Kissinger, like Henry Kissinger is like probably one of the like one of the biggest people that I look to or I I, I looked up to when it comes to diplomacy and you know the way him and Nixon dealt with Khrushchev and the Russians and the way they dealt with the Chinese and and this is this is like you know fifty years ago and we know we got the big stick. We know we got the bigger stick than almost anybody. Mm-hmm. But you got to have a soft tongue. And you got to be able to come in and and be able to like put down, you know, a viable plan or viable option so you understand it's not going to be tit for tat. Cuz it things can escalate, but as far as like, you know, me talking to this guy at the Bubbly Mermaid, I was just you know how much am I going to go into that with somebody at a bar? And you're not going to change his mind. No, no, it was it wasn't worth it. I I excused myself. I went home early, but I just like it enrages me to think that there's in some people's mind it, there's some there's some amount of time that can go by, and it's like oh, well, it's not a big deal because it happened ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Talk to their families because mm-hmm. I mean, nine eleven was almost twenty years ago. And you mean to tell me the families of those three thousand people still don't miss their loved ones? They yeah. don't, you know, still don't care. So it's just, you know, stuff like that kind of it can kind of get to me. But I gotta, you know, pick and choose my battles and not try to. It's not my job to go out there and fight everyone. So sometimes you just maybe you gotta shut down your ear, turn a blind eye, or just excuse yourself and and be the bigger guy. <laughs> you know, I've said this before on the podcast and. It's what I truly believe about kind of entertainment journalism. You know, if you're watching the worst parts about CNN or you're watching, I mean, Fox News, honestly, in general, most of the time, MSNBC as well, you're watching one talking head arguing against another talking head and each of them have one point about an issue that has a multitude of points. It's a very complicated situation, whatever they're talking about, right? And as a viewer, you're looking at that, and it is tantamount to a sports game, mm-hmm. right? So you're mm-hmm. watching your team arguing against or competing against the other team, the opposing team, and you're rooting for your team to win. And that's all you're rooting for. And it's it's rooted in argument, right? So getting back to your guy at the bubbly mermaid he has been conditioned to understand politics as an aggressor like a football game like a football match exactly rather than a civil conversation because change is not going to occur if we are all sitting here arguing Mm-mm. no and it's it's funny it's you use the uh, football analogy i my uh my whole flight chief, Rusty, he always cracked me up because he always called it. Um, he's like, man, I really wish we could get somebody like because um, he always he always used the analogy like professional wrestling. He was like, <laughs> he's like somebody's the protagonist, someone's the heel, and you got Mean Gene in the middle <laughs> with the microphone. <laughs> That's sadder, but it's also I think more closer to. <laughs> <laughs> So who's Ric Flair? (laughs) (laughs) Hannity. (laughs) You know, and the other thing is, I think a lot of this plays into the the mental health 
side of things and and with mental health being like i'm sad that there's been so many like horrible and catastrophic events that have happened in this nation and it's and it's like almost all stemming back to you know this instability this this men, this issue with mental health and and yet somehow some way this individual was able to get their hands on a weapon but then i look at the guys the men and women that i've served with and you know i go back and i look at my team uh people that i, I used to deploy with and you know i'll be 40 at the end of the month and um i've lost 16 friends and half of that is to suicide i'm not proud of this but i've almost committed suicide twice and early on when when i was still serving when i was still you know in in the military it was looked down upon to go and seek help and you know it was looked at like if you didn't seem like you were if, if if you didn't seem like you were all together or if it seemed like you were having a hiccup with with something going on up in the you know the toys in the attic we always called it our nickname for it was we called it the rod squad and rod stands for relieved of duty and nobody wanted to wind up on the rod squad you're out there, you know, you're still getting paid. You're still in the service, but you're painting rocks or you're planting trees or you're like, you're, you're doing, you know, shit work. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, for a lot of us, and and I don't know, you know, a lot of the guys from the Alaska team, I, I think the overall culture and environment has changed for the better. And the men and women that serve are able to go make those appointments and go get to see someone and go talk to someone and not be admonished or not be put on some kind of administrative leave or or have to be looked at with a jaundiced eye. You know, I'm I wasn't conditioned to be a pararescueman. I was I wasn't trained to be a door kicker. And yet, you know, I had my own internal struggles with like I said, the, like the lack of humanity, the seeing people at their absolute worst and seeing people break down and, and in understanding myself and where I was going to break down and where I was going to have issues. And I'm so happy to, I have a therapist now and it's been going on for a few months. I've been doing EMDR therapy and it's been really like great having someone to talk to go over these events go over these horrific things that i saw and then be able to process it in a way where at the end of it you are basically putting yourself in a different situation you're putting yourself in a different place Mm -hmm. and you can think about you know what your involvement was, the fact that you were just doing your job and not to put so much of that on yourself. And honestly, man, I, I, I think if they did a better job and I think they're, I think they're trying to do a good job, but you know, what took the catalyst, I think 
it took us to get to a point where we're statistically losing 22 people, 22 veterans a day to suicide. Really? Yeah. And, you know, it's sometimes I think the, the pain of our existence is social media, but I really am. I'm happy that they've got these different groups together on Instagram, on Facebook, whatever it is. Um, people that do therapy, live therapy on Instagram live mm -hmm. and, and these like the vet centers uh, here locally in Anchorage and just the different things they've got for people that have PTSD or have traumatic brain injuries. I have, I have, I suffered from TBIs. I have PTSD. Um, and then also people that suffer from military sexual trauma and, you know, something else that's another thing i have and so it's like you have these three things that are, are are now being dealt with or now are between the va and and your active duty service so whether you're part of the va choice program or whether you're part of tri west or tricare they want to get people in the right mindset not only while they're serving but once they're out because once you're out you don't I can't speak for everyone, but for myself personally, you know, I got this feeling of like free falling and I was like, you know, what's going to catch me? Well, you entered in 98. How old were you? I was 18. Yeah. So you spent the majority of your life in the military. I mean, yeah, I, I entered December of 98 and I uh, separated July of 09. So from 18 to 29, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was a member of the U.S. military and there's not a day that goes by that I'm not proud of my service. I'm not proud of what it is I experienced and what I got to see and what I got to be a part of. There's so many amazing things that I got to do, but there are some key events that have totally altered my life, you know? So what is it that gets you to begin the therapy process? Cause it seems like for a lot of people, like, the idea of going into counseling or admitting that they they have, you know, they don't have a perfect handle on their situation is like, you know, walking in the door, admitting to yourself, then you kind of lose this ability to pretend that it's fine. So what was it in your case where you kind of just had to, you know, start looking for a new solution? You know, I think for me, it was even up until the day I separated, I, I didn't dare think about going and seeking help. Because at that time, I still I still felt like there was a good chance I would be looked at differently or I'd be treated differently if I, I was seeking counseling. I kind of got to a breaking point um, in 2011. It was two years after I had just got back from Oman. I was I was a contractor over there. I was working at a. In fact, it's crazy, Cody. I was actually I was a I was an expat working at a refinery. 45 minutes like east of the Yemen border during the Arab Spring. Uh-huh. And I was like Tunisia went over went went down, Egypt, Mubarak got overthrown. There were riots everywhere. The place was insane. The Royal Omani Air Force was sending helos and uh up armored land cruisers and they were driving up and down our roads cuz they were pretty sure that you know, refugees from Yemen were going to come over and they were like, they were known for stopping 
their own countrymen. They were known for stopping Omanis at gunpoint and taking their mobile and their their car and you know leaving leaving them for dead in, in the desert. So you know I didn't get to get their hands on my fat ass like Nazi. <laughs> but I I I did my time over there. I finished out my contract. I came home, and I was just listening to like AM radio, and somebody was on. You know I, I can't remember what show I was listening to, but someone was talking about there was an interview with a with a soldier. And he was talking about how it's affected his day-to-day life and of all places to pull aside, to pull over and, and break down. I was in the parking lot at the Bush Company. <laughs> <laughs> Before or after entry? <laughs> Before. Okay. <laughs> I didn't go in. I was not going to. Going into the Bush Company sobbing is not a, it's One not a good look. One dance, please. <laughs> <laughs> You know, this guy's got real problems. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I like I pulled in the to the uh I didn't think I was safe on the road and I pulled over in, in the parking lot and I I put the the truck truck in park and I just man, I just I blubbered. I cried like a baby and I was thinking about I was like I shouldn't I shouldn't be like this. This this is this isn't what should be going on. In those moments when you do break down, are you thinking about something specific or is it just in general? Honestly, God, it's it's a culmination of everything. Yeah. It's, just, it's just kind of knowing that you've got this, um, you've got all these me- memories, you've got all these events that you've lived and, and all these, these things that have happened and it, it all comes rushing at one time. And I think that's why it was so impactful and, and it's why it's so... Um, it's what brought me to this point where like, I just, I, I really had to like, let it out. And mm-hmm. thankfully, um, on that program, they had, uh, given out an 800 number to, if you're having thoughts of suicide or if you needed help from the VA, please call this number. And I called and I was crying. I was bawling. And I was just like, I need help. I need, and they're like, well, you know, you're in Anchorage, the VA Medical Center is over off Muldoon, blah, blah, blah. When you call this 800 number, they refer you to something else. The guy that I talked to on the phone was really, like, nice. He really wanted to, like, you know, like, let's just, let me talk to you right now. Let me, I want to get an understanding of where you're at, like, your headspace right now. And and let me try to, I want to try to comfort you during this this time. Mm-hmm. And I, I I was, like... Oh, what do you call it when you're breathing too fast? And I was hyperventilating. Yeah. And I really, I had to calm down. And I was on the phone with this poor guy in Oklahoma or Ohio or whatever this call center was at. I mean, I was on the phone with him for like 45 minutes. And then finally, once I was I calmed down, I was okay. You know, that's when I got enrolled at the VA. And going through there, getting to talk to people, understanding what that process is, and how to go about things, um, it opened up kind of a, a full menu of, of what it is they're, they're there to provide. I owe so much to the VA. Like, honest to God, like, I don't even know. Being six foot, 370 pounds, like, it's not a good, I'm not in the best shape. I'm not in the best health. But I don't think I would be 
I don't think I'd be as as healthy as I am right now if it wasn't for their help. The mental health aspect of it was a little it was a little disappointing at times because like I was telling Mike, most of the people I would go talk to, it felt like it turned into like a regular therapy session. How's your week? How's work? How's your relationship? How's this? How's that? And nobody was like making you stare at it basically. Yeah. Like going to the foundation of, you know, why is it, why is it you're breaking down and crying? Why is it, what happened? Let's, let's talk about these events. And, and then when I, I moved out of state briefly, I was in Indiana for a couple of years and then I moved back and I knew I needed to go see a therapist. And it, when I was at Indiana, I was, I had a um, social worker that I talked to on the regular and he was pretty good. But when I got here, they didn't have enough room for me. We have too many people that we're seeing. Um, all of our mental health specialists are, are taken up at the moment. So now this gave me a chance to go out into the community. And I found this guy, Brian McInnes, and I, underst- I was to understand that he does EMDR therapy and I did some research on it and I heard that that had been very helpful with a lot of uh, vets that had PTSD and, and had different things that they were you know, facing. And this guy, like, let's get right to it. Let's, let's open up the box. Let's, let's figure out, let's pull everything out. And so and this one, was the first time that someone like Mike said earlier, made you stare at it. Absolutely. And that's, and that's three months ago. And it's, you know, here we are. I, I got enrolled in 2011 and now we're, now we're in 2020. And, you know, it took me eight years to, to see somebody or to finally get with somebody where I click. Cause it is important that you click with whoever you're talking to, but I click with this guy, like he listens and he's like, let's, let's see how we're going to process this. And it's been, it's, it's been really helpful. And it's, it's, it's honest to God, it's kicking it's kicking my depression in the ass and that's uh i'm eternally grateful for for what i'm getting to go through now and what i'm getting to experience if you don't mind me asking and you can get as in depth or as shallow as you'd like but what was that first session like where it was a breakthrough and you're like holy crap this is working so the first thing we talked about was the al qaeda and taliban the detainee missions. And the thing that made me feel like it was a breakthrough was the fact that Brian explained to me that it was okay for me to have some of the, I don't know if you want to call it remorse, but definitely like empathetic to what these guys were, were, were being you know, how they were being treated and how things were happening and not to think like I'm less of a patriot or I'm less of a soldier because it was to my understanding. The other thing that like was kind of fucking me up when we were over there and I don't know what the percentage was, but I knew that there were some, some of the able-bodied males that they had recruited 
or guys that they were going through some of these different villages and it was like either you're going to help fight the cause or we're going to take you and your family out so it's like again i don't know what the percentage was maybe it was 10 percent, maybe it was 20 percent. i don't know but i have to admit i have to imagine in like all these missions that i did and all these guys that got interrogated and, and got processed as as detainees as prisoners I have to imagine some of them weren't even weren't even into it they weren't even they didn't even want to fight and for that you know we've got them like I said they, we've got them chained up we've got them got burlap sacks over their head there's you know uh, duct tape around their necks and it's like I can't even fathom myself getting put into a position like that and enjoy you you've I was fortunate enough to be raised and, and born in, in this country, but what a godsend, like what a, what a blessing it is that I got to live and grow up here. Absolutely. And not, not be subjected to that, you know? Mm -hmm. So you were like conflicted that you were kind of empathizing with, you know, the person that's supposed to be considered the enemy basically. Yeah. And, and I guess if, if, if we had, if it was so, if it was very procedural and if it, if it was done with if it was done with um if we had done those missions with like a little more humanity or if, if we had been able to do those things and and I didn't have to see guys getting cracked with batons and and you know seeing guys just getting fucked up for just sitting there you know maybe it wouldn't have been so it wouldn't have had such a big impact mm -hmm. but but like I said, I think I just I think the inhumane treatment alone was it was just hard to experience. It was hard to see. And and it took, you know, sitting down with Brian to help process that and, and understand that it's you're not wrong and you're you're allowed to feel this, these these feelings. And it's it's I think it's too simple. It's it's too easy to go back and say something like you know war is hell. Well, of course war is hell, but you still you have to find a way to process that stuff. You got to mm -hmm. find a way to to deal with the things that you were involved with. You know, I've just recently started reading a lot about the Civil War, but that was just terrible hand to hand combat, and I would imagine you remember that Johnny, right? <laughs> <laughs> said you're turning 40. <laughs> but I would imagine those men suffered terrible PTSD. Absolutely. And so as we kind of look at the, at least the American wars through, through the years, you have Vietnam and Vietnam has its own type of literature, right? That wasn't like World War II where it was, World War II was primarily letters written back to loved ones, right? Uh, then you get into Vietnam and you have people like Tim O'Brien, right? Writing about how he thinks the enemy is feeling. So all of a sudden you have this, this other that they are considering their emotions and, you know, their drive and their wants and their desires, which I think is a it's got to be a pretty new thing, a new concept in war. Because as you were saying, you know, there's this person tied up 
and they're being beat and they're being questioned. I think that that's a lot different than shooting someone from 300 yards, you know, and just seeing a dot just fall. Right. No, it's, it's, uh, I think there's, and there's some people I think that, and I certainly don't think they, they're sociopaths or I don't think there's, you know, a screw loose or whatever, but some people know how to compartmentalize um, their events or they know how to, you know, disassociate that from what their normal life is when they get back stateside. And for those guys, you know, I tip my hat to you. If you, if you know how to separate those two things and you know how to, you know, deal with that in your own way, that's great. But that's like a, that's a real small percentage. You're, you're face to face with it and, you know, and it's not just the detainee missions. I mean, just, I mean, some of the times surviving, you know, me personally, me surviving a mortar blast and, and trying to associate like the fact that this isn't going to happen when you're home and you're safe, but you still don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And to this day, it's, it's hard for me to be at a professional sports event or a state fair or a mall or a movie theater. And is it too loud? It's, I don't know if it's the, the loudness so much as it is. I think it's like, it's like you almost, you're almost anticipating some kind of chaos. You're, it's, and I, I hate saying it like this, but it's, I think it's the best way I can put this. You always feel like, like a Jerry Bruckheimer movie is going to, kick off at any second. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be an explosion somewhere. I mean, just when before before we got here, I'm standing in line at Starbucks at to Fred Meyer's on Northern Lights and and I hate admitting this, but I'm thinking to myself, what if an active shooter happens? I'm standing here, what if someone starts popping off rounds? And I look and there's an emergency exit, you know, right to my right. That's uh it's the the west entrance to Fred Myers and i i constantly think about what i'm going to do if something crazy spins off something happens and i kind of want to go back to the the active shooter what if one comes into say Fred Meyer right as you were there you know the reality of what that feels like you know, to some degree, maybe not an active shooter in a Western civilization, but a shooter nonetheless. Right. There are people that don't have active duty, that walk around with guns on their hips, that that is their freaking dream. Yeah, they're definitely like fantasizing. Yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah. They're in that same Starbucks line thinking, God, I wish there was an active shooter that just came in here and I could be a hero. I wish they would. I <laughs> wish they would. <laughs> wish a motherfucker would. <laughs> Um, yeah. And, and, you know, for those, for people like that, you know, it's, it's a weird that's one. A, well, that's, it's, it's a baptism. It's baptism by fire because mm-hmm. now put up or shut up. And now you have a situation where there's some, you know, someone that's crazy or someone that's, that's out of their mind. And, and like you said, it's Western civilization. It's, it's so much of these, so many of these active shooter events have happened, you know, across the country. And not to say, I think Alaska is like the worst place 
to, <laughs> if you think you're gonna do that, if you're gonna spin off and like you're in the worst place to do this, like here in Texas, like you know everyone's carrying. So mm-hmm. you know there's a good chance you're not gonna have to worry about the cops. But I think that you're right. Having this active duty background, having these deployments behind my back, having these these events and things that happen. I guess sometimes I'm trying to like, I'm trying to realize, um, is it, is it okay for me to have these feelings? Is it okay for me to, to think like this or is this a detriment, you know, to my, to my being? And I guess there's one half of me that's like, you know, you're, you're overthinking everything. You're not, you know, you don't need to think like that. But then there's another side of me that's kind of like, well, if it happens, then I've already made a game plan Mm -hmm. and I already kind of know what I'm going to do. And I hope to God, I pray to God that nothing ever spins off and nothing ever happens here. And I don't want to see anyone get hurt or, or killed or maimed. But, you know, I just, I think I've come to this point, this realization that this just might be part of my makeup it's just maybe it's just part of who i am now well in 10 years of bouncing i mean you're kind of getting paid to be on alert looking for stuff to jump off right so that probably adds to it quite a bit and i and i miss and i miss that and in some aspects i miss that that call to order and and that that ability to you know be there for people and i remember working for i worked for osha for you know, the greater part of four or five years. And it felt good when I got to go into a place and I got to bring up some of these key safety deficiencies and I would try to help them. And it was all in the name of making sure that everyone went home safe at night. But then there's those moments where I had to, I've gone to active, you know, fatality investigations where the guy's still there. Or the gal, you know, and body, body, and and you're, you know, we we would show up before the coroner showed up. What was your job at this point? At this point, I was um, with OSHA. I was a compliance, safety, and health officer, or what we call a co-show. Okay. And I was um, typically I was the lead investigator on the scene, and from there, you know, you come in and it's a very somber environment. You want to be respectful to the coworkers, the people that are around there. Um, you know, you do your concentric circle, and you're taking pictures, and you're 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 kind of winding yourself, you know, into the the point of impact. And you know, it's I I really I think I I I kind of enjoyed or I really loved that job because I did feel like, although there wasn't the rush and the the urgency that that called for me when I was in in combat, but I still knew at the end of the day that there was something I was doing to try to have a helpful impact or try to make sure that this catastrophic event or this accident didn't happen again. And it was all very real and and it made me feel like I still had I was still in the fight mm-hmm. somehow. Something that you keep bringing up and you included in the bio, thank you, by the way, that you sent to Mike and Mike forwarded it to me, 
is this idea of duty. How do you balance your sense of duty with the inevitable long-term physical and mental pain that comes with it? You know, I, I, it's, I, don't, I don't mean to sound like a Boy Scout, but like, you know, one of the, one of the core values in the Air Force is service before self. And, you know, they really, they beat that into our heads, you know, when we're young. And uh, some people, you know, can, can just listen to the, you know, the three core values and just kind of move about their day. But, you know, I took that stuff to heart. And, and I think I took a lot of pride in the fact that I joined. My, my grandfather was an immigrant from Italy, and he served with the U.S. Army during World War II. And my uncle and my dad were Air Force and Army during, um, during the Vietnam era. And, and now my brother and myself have been a part of, of this, you know, this era, this environment. My brother served in, in Kuwait and Iraq and, and I was all over the damn Middle East, but, but, you know, I had my part too. And that service before self didn't end in 2009 when I separated, like I carried that in my time at the doors at the different, at various bars, my time, working up on the slope, my time as a contractor for the FAA, my time with OSHA. It was it was really all, all about, you know, either the people around me or, or the guys I work with. And I would guess that it didn't start in 98 either, considering your family has been in the military. Yeah, my, <laughs> my dad actually... Um, it's funny because I feel like I was already kind of preconditioned before I uh, before I left. Um, my dad having a military background and having that as well as my dad retired as the chief of OSHA for Alaska in 2006. And my stepmom was uh, she was in charge of she was like the HR director for FedEx. So in my household, it was. It was all rules. It was all ethics. It was, you know, morals and, you know, all the way down to, you know, making your bed right and make sure you got hospital corners. And like, I mean, I already had kind of a stringent upbringing and, and then knowing that my dad was out there trying to make a safer work environment in the state, um, it made me feel like, you know, I was really proud of what my dad did and, I wanted to I wanted to try as best as I can to have the same kind of impact my dad had. Do you remember or have any situations that really stick out to you about being proud of your dad? Like a story or something that he told you and you know it was a moment where you're like my dad's a hero. There's a, there's a lot of stories, but I think you know, he came home from, I can't remember if it was a Lignigic or it was somewhere, it was somewhere out in Bristol Bay and he had done an accident investigation involving a, oh, I call foreign national or someone that 
was over here working at one of the seafood processing places, you know, from another country. Okay. The guy didn't know how to speak English. And, you know, he was, they were processing fish and they've got these conveyor belts with these little hooks on them. And they had these mesh gloves, like chain mesh gloves. Mm -hmm. And the glove got caught on one of the hooks and it ran his arm through the mechanical portion of the conveyor and it mangled mangled his arm and i remember when dad came home and he had he had to interview the guy and they had to get the state provided a a translator to come in and, and dad talked and like just hearing him describe how much um how much it meant to him to be an advocate for this guy, this poor, this poor guy whose whose life is permanently changed, mm-hmm. and it made me stop and think about the times I used to be embarrassed because my dad was known for like he would crack me up like we'd be driving somewhere across town you know we're you know running errand or we're gonna go have lunch or something like that when I was a kid and see he'd see something he'd see like an imminent danger or he'd see somebody up on a rooftop without a fall protection harness and he pulled a car over and i'm like god does he have to do this and it used to like embarrass me because i would just get out and like he would and he would call on somebody if he couldn't handle it right then and there he'd call somebody else that worked for him hey you get your ass down here and you know you need to you need to hook these guys up and i was just like i was like oh he's he's a safety police and you know they give my dad a badge and he's like <laughs> he was he's such a fan of these like cop dramas like nypd blue and law and order and i'm just like i'm like oh he's yeah, i thought he was like corny but then something like this happens and like i said he became an advocate for this person and, and he wanted to make sure that they are going to permanently change their culture so this doesn't happen to someone else mm-hmm. and i was just really proud i was really proud of my dad because i was just like man that's that's the kind of impact I want to have. I want to to know that I can go in somewhere and and spot a problem or see something wrong, and and change it permanently so something like this doesn't happen again. It's I think it's it's pretty powerful. So you'd mentioned that um, the core value of service before self. It's sort of interesting too, though, that you kind of got to a wall at one point where. You know, you realize you have to start taking care of yourself to be useful to anybody else. Uh, how does that kind of translate now at this point? Well, it was it was ultimately um, it came to a point where it was critical that I, you know, I do look at taking care of myself on on certain issues, certain topics. Um, otherwise, I was starting to question whether or not, you know what's my value, what's my worth to these people that I run across, the people I come in contact with, if if I'm not taking care of myself. So, I mean, there's that. But but then the other part of it is I'm volunteering with the USO at base or whether I'm helping out with youth hockey. I think that there's always an opportunity. There's always a chance. I don't want to say mentoring because that's probably not the – that's not what I'm really going for, but – 
at my root core, I'm always trying to steer people in the right direction or at least have a direction that's going to have a positive outcome for them. And, and I, I, but it's not just me guessing that's that, that comes from me getting to talk with people, you know, let me know a little bit more about you. Let me know some of your background. Let me know your history and then give them some, you know, some kind of a take on things or just, well, here's my personal experience. And I dealt with X, Y, and Z during this time in my life. And really, I mean, they could take it or leave it, but I would be remiss or I would feel bad or less than if, if I didn't, you know, give them that little bit of wisdom or, or try to impart some of that wisdom on them. I've always thought that, you know, like dealing with anything that's like painful or terrible or whatever, like the only way that you can really make that useful or justify it is by being able to understand it for somebody else if they're going through it. And I think even just talking about like what you're discussing so openly sort of helps kind of remove a lot of the stigma that's kind of attached to it. It, it really does. And like it, there's, there's points in my life where I've been able to talk about this stuff, whether it's with a professional like like my therapist or whether it's um, just talking like to you, Mike, you know, when you and I sit down and I chat, you know, it's like you got this. Um, I feel like I've got this this big balloon inside and and it's like every time you get a chance to openly talk and and, and put yourself out there and, and, and discuss the things that you're dealing with or the things that you're wrestling with, like every time you get to do that, it's just like you're letting a little bit of air out every time, you know? Yeah. I think that there's a lot of people that um, there's still stigma, not necessarily bounded to, the, you know, veterans, but just mental health in general, people going, you know, talking to people. And it's useful to talk to friends about it, but it's not, you know, the circumstances that that's going to come up are very rare in a conversation. If there's multiple people, you're not going to have that deep conversation. And I think that's what like, counseling is useful for people is that you're basically like outsourcing, you know, those type of conversations that you'd have with a friend, except it's an hour long and it's intense focus just on you. Cause that's not going to come up, you know, at a bar. Right. You know, right. And, and, and processing it is that that's to me, that's like almost, that's almost the biggest thing. That's the biggest part of it is, is processing and, and getting to know, um, how you're going to get to, that other side of the tunnel yeah. you can see the light like you can see where you can eventually have a, a life that doesn't surround yourself with um depression and, and anxiety and in and these maybe thoughts of inadequacy or maybe thoughts of insecurities but then to process it and and to realize that you know you do have um you're building on your self-worth you're building on your you're like attacking it you're being yeah. you're being proactive about it you're not just saying like oh, this is it this is permanent or whatever you're yeah. saying like well this is it right now but i'm taking a step every week absolutely to kind of feel yeah, better yeah. About it. and it's you know and it's funny talking to mike he was like he was like you know it's you can't attack it all at one time. It's 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 little steps, mm -hmm. and you just you know whether it's your physical, your mental health, you strive to do something each day, and 
try to put yourself in a better position and in little little bit at you know over time you know you take you take enough chunks out of that boulder and it'll turn into a pile of rocks and you're building momentum too it's like making checklists like when you're doing like your checklist for the day or whatever you got to give yourself some easy ones, you know, yeah. like <laughs> brush your teeth. You want to cross you know. some stuff off. Yeah. Like, ooh, I'm on a roll. <laughs> so you were talking about uh, small goals. I feel like I always talk about small goals and little ways that you can attack big issues, right? Um, in that same bio that you wrote and Mike forwarded to me, you mentioned depression. How do you personally kind of pick away at depression? I I think for me, the one of the biggest things that's helpful is getting out of your comfort zone when you're battling those bouts of depression. Because there's a lot of times where and I hate it because I think to myself all the years that have gone by and all the friends I've had and family and, and different events that come up and things where you're, you were supposed to be somewhere at a certain time. But I chose not to go. Or I chose not to be around those people because I just wanted to hunker down. I just wanted to be my, myself. And now I find myself in a point where especially just in the last three months with, with this, this therapy I'm going through now. And, and, and I'm, I'm not, I'm trying to be cognizant about not letting myself get into that comfort, get out of your comfort zone, mm -hmm. go, go be out there, go, go mix it up with people. And I, I'm, hell, I'm a chatty Cathy. Like I'm, <laughs> I can, I can talk your, you know, I can talk for days and I'm kind of a social butterfly. Like we, if we all go downtown and go, you know, go hang out at F Street or Pioneer. Like I'll, there's a good chance I'm going to run into, you know, five or ten people and you know, chop it up with them. But it's getting out of that comfort zone and and not letting yourself wallow in whatever it is you're feeling, and really making striving to do something for yourself or do something to not let yourself, you know, get wrapped up in those feelings and emotions. That's uh, to me, that's, it's so important. Mm -hmm. Get out of your head. I think that's a big part of counseling too, is that you're kind of like helping to identify your own bullshit, basically. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, wait a minute. I said that I wasn't going to hunker down, but now I'm just deciding to hunker down again. <laughs> like, maybe today I'm going to just go and, you know, go and see my friends or whatever. You know? Right, right. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, I think all three of us can speak to this, and, and I think we all have our own things that, you know, we can look forward to, you know, during these bouts of winter when it gets, you know, bone-crushing cold, and it's just like, for me, that's my, my avenue for um, helping out and doing volunteer acts. You know, I know this, I mean... <laughs> Not to be critical of myself, but I, I actually like once a month I make time to go walk through the museum. You know, I I, I love the art community that we have here and in, in supporting my friends that are local artists and um you know, go seeing like Joe Kenishiro's works that are hanging up in Sub Zero right now and like going out and 
participating in things like First Friday and then God help us when we get to Ferrande and, you know, running another reindeer and the ceremonial start. And there's like, it's so funny because I had a lot of friends come up here and visit even in the winter and not just the summer. And it's like, you know, the first thing I always hear from people are like, oh my God, you guys, like you guys drink so much or, you know, everything's rolled around alcohol. And I don't really like to categorize it or paint that picture. I just think of it as like, yeah, there is there is a fair amount of stuff that that plays into that scene, but also it's an avenue for people to get out of their homes and to be social and to for sure you know get those serotonin levels picked up because you're happy and you're out and you're with your friends and you're doing things. A lot of people ski and snowboard and snow machine and all that, and and I don't do a whole lot of that, but there is plenty of things I I think. Our community has been very open and active in, in trying to make sure that there are things for people to do so they don't feel like they're stuck. Yeah. I feel like we could all probably sit here and talk for another hour. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to, to wrap this up, another thing that I took from your bio is where you say, I want it to be known that it's in my very core to help and take care of people. Why do you feel it's important for people to know that about you? You know, I think... Are you afraid that uh, people will think otherwise unless you tell them? Or is it something else? No, I, I, I think that's... You know, I don't... And it's nothing that I want... Um, that bio was just kind of, you know, I wanted you to have a kind of understanding of, you know, where my background is and what, how I feel about things. And it doesn't like. And I guess to clarify, the reason I, I ask that is because I have similar sentiments that I say, because I can often come off kind of brash or uh, kind of like an, a an asshole. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm not saying that you come off like that, but no, this is no. my interpretation of this was personal. I'm like, oh, he, I wonder if he thinks or if he tries to make that known because of, you know, X. Yeah, I, I think that plays, uh, I think uh, I think a big portion of it is what my professional career has been, my, 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 my career choices and the things that I've experienced and the things I've been a part of and the things that I've, I've endured. But I think the other thing is, is like, um, I want my family and friends to know that no matter what the situation is, you know, they can come to me. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I'm always going to have the right answers. It's not like I'm always going to know, you know, the right thing to say or the right thing to do. But I'm going to put as much effort as I can into helping them get through whatever situation they're going through and in the hopes that, you know, not, not to get like, I'm not looking for the attaboy on me. I'm hoping that they get through the situation a little better than, than what I did or how I went through it. And if the takeaway is they feel just a little bit better, or maybe they, they're able to process something a little better. You know, it makes me feel good and it makes me feel like there's, you know, 
a good reason or there's a purpose, I'm here. Mm-hmm. As you've mentioned earlier, you've been in therapy for about three months now and you have made these incredible improvements. If somebody's listening right now that is, is going through something similar to what you had gone through, what would you say to them? You know, I think the first thing I would I would always recommend to someone is if you're not actively getting help, seek help. And and there's so many different avenues of approach. You know, I look at whether if you're in the military or if you're a veteran, you know, the VA has got amazing programs out there. And I think it's important that you take the time and, and try to figure out um, whether you're just doing baseline interviews with uh, multiple therapists, but but get with someone that you're going to feel com- comfortable, you know, giving that out to. The other thing is, um, you know, for civilians, if, if, you know, you're feeling you're having problems, you're having issues, you know, there's, I'm trying to remember, I think one of the biggest, um, oh man, I remember I had a brief stint with the Alaska State Ombudsman Office and the Ombudsman Office has got, uh, their, they're a wealth of knowledge. There's so many different things. There's so many different programs that they're aware of and they can, they can turn people, you know, or direct people to the, you know, the right institutes or the, the right personnel to, to help them out. And I wish I could speak, you know, more clearer on that, but I know I think about people like first responders, like cops and firefighters and, in you know, granted they have, they all have, from what I understand, pretty good, you know, benefit package, but I wish, I hope, you know, for our first responders out there and our EMS personnel, you know, I hope they get help. I hope they seek out people that are going to help them process the catastrophes that they've been a part of and, and really just work on, like I said, taking those baby steps, trying to chip at that boulder one one chip at a time and, and get to a point where, you know, you're you feel a little more comfortable in your skin and you're not you're not carrying such a big load, you know? Well this has been great, John. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. Oh, thank you. I really love this. I love your show. I've been listening to it for a long time. In fact, before we go, I gotta tell you, we hit this I was fishing with Ryan and we hit this like magic spot where all of a sudden I had like my LTE came on with the uh, my Verizon phone. I had like two bars, and I knew I could like I could download something. And we we had just a real short window, and I downloaded the Mike Dempsey episode <laughs> while we were out there, <laughs> and then uh, like we Bluetoothed it through Rhino's uh, uh, stereo, and we listened to the whole thing while we we're out there fishing and. Ryan was cracking up the whole time. Like we were just, we were dying laughing. And oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So like, I appreciate like the things you do and the people you talk to, and you know, Joker, the Bell Bondsman, and and Roger, and I mean, I'm just, and of course, Mike D, and like, just you're you're doing a great thing here, and I, I appreciate you let me come in and be a part of this. Thank you so much, man. That that means a lot. Thanks, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Bet Michael. <laughs>
For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.